Paul writes and says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let's pray. My, oh my, Lord, thank you that you have given us in your inspired word a glimpse of who the church is to be. And my prayer is for us, Lord, that we would embody this, that we would be this kind of church. So enable us and help us. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you. You could be seated. Man, I'm so um, excited about sharing this this message, um, truthfully, this is a message that like I've kind of wanted to preach for well over a year. And so, um, so I'm, ex- I'm excited to finally get to share it. I was able to share a glimpse of it, kind of a sneak peek of it um, last, last winter whenever the, the men went through our shepherding school. But here's kind of the premise of where we're going today and even um, next week. And it, it's here. It's that gospel doctrine leads to gospel culture. Okay, gospel doctrine leads to gospel culture. And so let me take just a minute. Let me define the terms. First of all, the term gospel, what the gospel is in the Bible, is I'm not referring to the the books written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, although those are called gospel accounts. But what I'm speaking to is, is the good news. It's the good news. And what is that good news? Well, it's simply this. It's the good news that it's good news for sinners like you and me that through Jesus's perfect life and Jesus's substitutionary death and Jesus's bodily resurrection, that you and I can be forgiven of our sin and made in right standing with God. It is good news that the Holy Spirit has been gifted and given to us, those who come to Christ with empty hands, only the hands of faith, believing in Christ that you and I can be gifted with the Holy Spirit and can have new life in him. That's the good news. The good news is what Christ has accomplished and what Christ has done. The good news is not a to-do list for us to accomplish and tick off, right? Like like a checklist to make sure we got all of our, our I's, wait, I's dotted and T's crossed. That's not what it is, but it's what Christ has done. It's good news that we hear and we believe and embrace. It's not uh, news that comes to us as something that we do. And it's good news. It's unbelievably good news. And what do we mean by doctrine? So that defines gospel. It's simply this. Doctrine is, it's a system of beliefs. The gospel doctrine put together is what we've come to know about Christ and Christ's finished work. 
It's something that you and I, we learn from the Bible, that we read the Bible and the Bible has informed us. It's building for us our, our doctrine. It's shaping us and shaping our worldview that everyone has doctrine. Everyone believes something about Jesus. Everyone, it's either correct biblical doctrine or it's incorrect doctrine. It's assumptions and, and make-believe. And I say, I put good doctrine, correct doctrine, right doctrine. I bridge that together with the Bible because there is one God and the rest is, is idols, right? And, and demons and, and false gods and, and make-believe gods and imaginary friends, right? For adults that some people have that. That we live in a time where sometimes you can share something biblically with someone and their response to that will be, well, that's not the God that I believe in. And if it's from the Bible, rooted in the Bible, this is true about God. Who you believe in is, is a pretend friend for you, right? It's make-believe because the God of the Bible, the one true God, has chosen to reveal himself. And the way that he's revealed himself is in and through his word. Yes, he's revealed himself in creation. Yes, most assuredly, he's revealed himself in his son, Jesus, who is God. But how do we even know anything about Jesus? We know it from the Bible. And so we study and read the Bible. And as we do that, we, we get a view, we get a doctrine of who God is. And then gospel culture. Now, they may be taking a little bit of liberty here with the usage of the word gospel with culture. But still, what I mean by that is it's the feel the atmosphere, the relational climate, the ethos of the people who believe the gospel. That every family has, it has a culture to that family. That the family that you came from and the family that you are building out, it has, it has a culture to it. That some of you, 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 you grew up or maybe that your, your, your home, your family is, a, is an open home versus a closed home. Last weekend when Luann and I, we went and visited with uh, Jason and Mary Hampton, we were invited into their home and we're sitting there on their couch and their door just continued to open up. I mean, Jason and Mary are there. Their, their kids are in the room and the door just opens up and people just walk in. Nobody rings the doorbell or knocks on the door. I mean, that's an open home to the nth degree. People just walk in, hey guys, brought you some food. Hey, what are we having tonight? And evidently they'd send out like a blanket invitation for all these people. For us, we're like, hey, how are you guys? You know, meeting people. Some of you have that kind of home where it's an open home. People are invited. They, they come, they visit you. Others of you, you know, if it's, unless it's the political season, nobody rings on your doorbell. You know, a closed home. And I'm saying right or wrong. I'm just saying that's the culture of your home. Some of you have a very structured home. Some of you, a less or unstructured home. Some of you, you, you grew up and Monday night was meatloaf. Tuesday night was tacos. Wednesday night was pot roast, right? Others of you, you grew up where every night was the possibility for cereal night, right? Like some of you, you grew up just like that in an unstructured home. Some of you have a tight-knit family. Some of you have a loose-knit family. Like you experience this when you get married. That's one of the things that makes the first year or first 10 years of marriage really tough is what you have is you have a collision of two family cultures coming to live together, right? Oh, this isn't the way that we did it. Well, this is the way that we did it, right? And you have that friction as you trying to figure that out, that and the, 
at the root of it, every one of us are terribly selfish sinners, right? That's the other thing that makes marriage so difficult, that every family has a culture to it, a feel to it. The intangibles are what we're talking about here, whether it's intentional or it's unintentional. And this family, we talked about a few weeks ago that we are a family together, the Point Community Church. We're a family, and this family has a culture to it. And that culture can either be intentional or unintentional. And here's what I'm getting at with gospel doctrine leads to a gospel culture. That what we experience from Christ and in Christ should be our experience to a degree in the church. That what we experience vertically should be what we give out, should be our, what we extend horizontally. So the message of the gospel is a message where we, where we come face to face with God's kindness, with God's grace, with God's love, with God's generosity, with God's acceptance. And that is what we are to give out horizontally, that we are to be a kind and loving and generous and accepting and gracious family. A right understanding of the gospel it should inform and give shape to our reality and to our real human relationships. We haven't got there yet in the Gospel of John. For those of you that are visiting with us, we are usually are working our way through a book of the Bible. We're currently in the book of John. We've kind of taken a little break. We'll pick that back up um, in early in January in 2019. But we haven't got there yet. But in John 13, 35, Jesus will say this to his disciples. He say, in this, they will, they will know. So he's speaking about outsiders looking their way into a gathering of disciples. In this, they, those who are on the outside, they will know that you are my disciples. And then Jesus doesn't say, in the purity of your doctrine, he doesn't say in what you know about me, in your knowledge of me, but what does Jesus say? It's in that you love one another, that our belief and our knowledge of Jesus is being evidenced in how we treat one another, how we love one another, how we are incredibly kind and gracious and generous to one another. Let's spend some time in this text. What a great text of scripture we have here for us. There are three Three gospel culture indicators or markers I see in this text, maybe more, but we'll just spend time looking at three. The first one is, is it's humility being worked out in deference, not living to, your, to please yourself, but to please others. Second, it is unity being worked out in harmony. Together with one voice, we're glorifying God. And number three, it is hospitality working itself out in welcoming others. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. The first one, humility working its out, itself out in deference. Paul writes and says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. 
So what we have here is we have uh, Paul indicating that there are strong Christians and there are weak Christians. There are mature Christians and there are those who are on their way to maturity in Christ. And what Paul says here is knowledge alone does not lead one to maturity, but it's what they do with that knowledge. That to keep this in the context, who are the strong Christians? It's not based upon their knowledge alone, although it is important for their knowledge. But in context, what's happening here, Paul is saying is the strong Christians are those who understand their freedoms. That it is, as Paul will write in Galatians, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. That they no longer look at Christ as a new form of religion or legalism, trying to make them outwardly conform to the law. But inwardly, they've been changed. And it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. And the strong Christians, they understand their freedoms where the weaker Christians, the weaker brothers are still trying to live by the law and live by to please others. And they're still kind of bound up by these old ideas and they've yet to be totally set free. It's not that one has a spirit and the other one doesn't have the spirit. It's that one is living out the knowledge that they've learned from Christ. And the other one may be either living in ignorance or maybe they just need to hear it again and again and again that Christ has set you free. You're totally free. The issue at hand is what can they do with meat that has been sacrificed by idols? That has been the tradition for years that the Jews would never eat that meat. But now in freedom, they learn that an idol doesn't exist. Again, an idol is make-believe. So the food sacrificed to an idol is just that. It's just food. You chew it up, your body absorbs some of the nutrients, and then it moves on along, right? And that's what the Apostle Paul is teaching them. And the Strong Christians come to understand their freedoms. They're no longer bound by the Jewish traditions of food laws, but we've been set free. But the weaker Christians are like, no, we can't eat that. We can't drink that. We can't listen to that music. No, maybe that wasn't Christians. Maybe that was just some of our Baptist heritage, right? We can't play cards. We can't, we can't, we can't. And the gospel becomes a doctrine and a belief of what we can't do. What Paul's saying here is no, strong Christians understand this. All that we get to do but then the next marker of strong Christians isn't just knowledge that they know that they're free. It's what do they do with those freedoms? And what Paul says is strong Christians, they take their freedoms and they lay them down for the benefit of the weaker Christians. They don't flaunt their freedoms in their face. They don't make fun of those who are less free. But what strong Christians do is they lay their freedoms down for the good of others. They build each other up. And that's where this idea of deference comes in. It is humility, as Pastor Brian preached on last week, thinking less of ourselves, more of Christ and others, but it's being demonstrated in this idea of deference, this idea of not living to please yourself, but your idea of living to please others. That's the principle that you and I, we do not live to please ourselves alone. Our faith and our life does not terminate on, on our own pleasures or our own desires, but the purpose of them is to, to glorify God by building others up. It's the preferential treatment of others that we should possess a true inward desire to see our brothers and sisters in Christ being built up and growing and flourishing, even if that means I need to take a back seat. 
even if it means that all my needs are not met, even if it means that this goes against maybe how I would prefer things. And then what fuels this kind of lifestyle? It's not a law. You can't law your way into love. The law and love, when, when thought about, when pressed on the outside, they're two very different things, are they not? Like men in the room, right? Husbands in the room that have won their wives over. How did you win your wife over? By locking her in a room and, de and demanding that she love you? Like they call that abuse. That's called being a psycho. It doesn't work very well. She may hourly pretend to love you, but she really doesn't love you. Like you can't lull your way into love that God's not declared, love me as a command. Now come to look, God says, see who I am. See what I've done for you. Look at my great love I have for you and most assuredly in being displayed in my son Jesus and his death. Look at this love and it, it engenders love to us. And the same thing is true here. He's not lulling us into this, but he's saying what, what fuels this kind of lifestyle. But to be honest, this goes against everything you and I knew before we met Christ. Like that's why we say gospel, gospel culture. I mean, gospel doctrine leads to gospel culture because when Christ walked into the room, it changed everything, did it not? I heard one time a, a news story of a guy that got invited. Uh, got, he got invited to go to a, a dinner party and he's hanging out at a dinner party and little did he know that like the most influential, well-liked, most powerful person in all of Kentucky had been invited into this room. And he said like, the party was just okay up until the moment the doors open and not the governor, but John Calipari walked into the room and he's like, the whole atmosphere of the party changed. I mean, people were like, oh my God, John Calipari's here. Oh, look, I didn't know he was coming. And that makes me somebody. And the same thing happened when Christ walked into our hearts and walked into our lives and walks into this room as we collectively come together. Jesus changes the very atmosphere of everything. Everything in our lives change when Jesus walks in the room, including the way that we see ourselves, including our preferences, including our desires. That what the scripture says here, what fuels that is our knowledge of Jesus. Look at what it says about Jesus. Verse number three. Why should we please each other? Because of this, because Christ did not please himself, but as it was written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on Christ. What he means by here is the guilt, the shame, the rebuke, the rejection that belonged to us, Christ has shouldered it. We'll even see this, I believe in the gospel of John. We see this in the, in, in the story, the crucifixion story as it, as it plays out. Remember that it's a custom for the Romans to set free a prisoner. And so Pontius Pilate chooses Barabbas, who's a, a zealot, who's, you know, a, a, not a good person, right? A, 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 an actual bad person, a murderer, and Jesus. And he, he cries out to the crowd, which one do you want me to to set free. I'll set one of the two free, Jesus who's done nothing, or this murderer, this zealot, this, you know, this insurrectionist. Who do you want me to set free? And what's the crowd cry out? 
Barabbas, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. But what about Jesus? And the crowd cries out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. That, that angst that the crowd feels, that reproach that they feel towards Christ. Christ is, didn't deserve it, but he's absorbing it. And the truth is all of that belonged to us. That rejection, that wrath, that guilt, that shame, that punishment fell in. I'm an older brother. I have two younger sisters. I have an older brother as well, but I have two younger sisters. Let me just be honest. Like I never ever stood up to my dad and said, hey, punish me, don't punish Missy. Never. I never said, hey, 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 stop. Stop yelling at Missy. We didn't yell in our home. We just had lectures really loudly, right? (laughs) Don't lecture Missy really loudly. Lecture me really loudly. But Jesus has done that for us. Jesus has stepped into our place, the reproaches that rightly belong to you and I. Christ has shouldered them. That's deference. That is Christ preferring you. I often talk about my, my grandfather, but I, and, and I've said this before. My grandfather was a great godly man and he was hilarious, but my grandmother was maybe more... More, more, more godly, more, more knowing of Christ than even my grandmother, than even my grandfather. My grandmother, she over and over again would tell me one message. Is Andy, Jesus didn't die for the masses. If it would have just been you separated from God, he would have come and died for you. Man, that's hard to believe, but it's absolutely true that your reproaches, Christ shoulders them. Ultimately, he shoulders them on the cross. And what Paul is saying when you see that, when you rightly come to understand all that Christ is and all that Christ has done, you reorient your life in such a way, like Christ, that you build others up. You don't worry about your own comfort but you're willing to be made uncomfortable for the good of others. Verse number four, Paul says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That's me and you, the New Testament church. It's written for us that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, you and I may have hope. That goes back to that biblical doctrine piece. Paul's quoting the Old Testament here and he's saying that the Old Testament We would lump in all of the Bible has been written for our instruction, for our encouragement. He's saying that in regards to the fact that he just quoted from the Old Testament. So the joker that's on the internet and on TV that says we need to unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament, the Old Testament from the modern day expression of the church, Paul would have freaked out. As some of us rightly freak out when people say that, that's heresy. That the Bible is forming our doctrine and giving shape to our lives. And it gives us real instruction and real endurance and real hope. Next, we see a unity working itself out in harmony. One voice glorifying God. Look at verse number five. May the God of endurance encouragement. That's why his word gives endurance and gives encouragement because he's the God of endurance and encouragement. That's a good word. Some of you are in tough seasons of your lives right now. Some of you are enduring hard things right now. 
God is the source of encouragement and endurance. He's giving that to you. He's not just our example of encouragement and endurance, although Christ is, but he's also by the power of his spirit giving to you endurance and encouragement to run your race well, to suffer well for God's glory. You, you got endurance and encouragement. May he grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That when humility and deference, they allow us as the church collectively to live in harmony with one another. That we together with, with one voice, we are glorifying God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We covered this in the, I believe in the servant sermon, but what Paul's picking up here again is this idea of harmony. It's multiple voices, not all singing the same note, but it's different notes all sung in the same chord. Where's Becky? I need help here. All sung together in the same chord, a grouping of notes from different voices stacked on top of each other, singing harmony. That when we're singing harmony, you're not trying to outshine or to outsing the rest of the singers. It's not about you being in the spotlight, you being in the limelight, but it is about us coming together, making a beautiful melody. That's what Paul is saying here, that with one voice, we are glorifying the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that it's impossible for you to glorify yourself and to glorify God simultaneously. It's impossible for you to say, look at me, see me, look at what I'm doing, and you to give glory to God that you're doing one of the or the other. Either your life is giving glory to yourself or your life is giving glory to God, but it's not both and. It can't be both and. And the same thing is true for us as a church. We will always choke out one for the other. Cannot simultaneously call attention to yourself and to God. It's again, it's a humility piece, that unity and harmony, right? That's, that's, that's the markers of the church, not uniformity, but unity and harmony. As Derek even read in the Ephesians passage, that the church in the New Testament church is originally being made up of, of Jews that have been all scattered from abroad that speak different languages and Gentiles who were outside of God's covenant. Gen I mean, the Jews and the Gentiles, they didn't, like before Christ, they didn't worship the same God. They didn't dress the same. They didn't eat the same. They probably didn't smell the same. They didn't speak the same language. And now all of a sudden, because of Christ, the declaration of the gospel is your family. And we want you to come together and meet together in churches. And the early church, they didn't meet because they wanted to meet. They met out of necessity. They needed to come and to learn. They came together out of, out of joy and overflow. We can't wait. We read about this in Acts, the second chapter, but you got very diverse and very different people. So the church has never been marked by uniformity. It's not about us all dressing the same and looking the same and, right, and, and, and listening to the same kinds of music or any of those things. I mean, we're very diverse even here. We're diverse in our backgrounds. We're diverse in our socioeconomic standings. We're diverse absolutely in our opinions, right? I mean, I feel like the Apostle Paul here. It's been reported to me that some of you here in this room actually listen to modern day country music. Like some in our midst, maybe Luke Bryan and Georgia Florida Line fans 
Ugh, right? But my job is to love you and to accept you and to receive you because of Christ. We're all one in Christ, right? Like we don't have the same political views. Believe that. Thank God for that. Like we don't see politics the same. We don't see the world the same. Like we're, some of us are very different. I mean, let me just get unpopular opinion. I hate Walt Disney World. <laughs> like, I know some of you in here would live there if given the choice. And I know this summer I will have to take my, what would be then four-year-old Haitian daughter to Walt Disney World, but I'd almost just soon be waterboarded as to take her to Walt Disney World. Unpopular opinion, I get it. Unpopular opinion, I do not own a single piece of camouflage clothing. Not nothing, not a hat not boots, not shoes, not, nothing. And some of you would wear camo every day if you were allowed to wear camo. I mean, I could go on, right? I could, I could go on and I could go on and I can go on that we are, we are different. But what unites us together as family and even that into real relationship. Like again, family's so convoluted because you got together with a bunch of strangers and ate turkey and you would say, that's my family, but there's no relational connection with those people. When Jesus says we are family, what he's saying is we have been in, in reality. We're being relationally connected one to another to love each other and to encourage each other and to be all up in each other's business for the good of the gospel and your good to encourage you. That's who we are as family and what unites us isn't a common background. It isn't common seasons of life. Like we used to break church down and we had classrooms that were based upon seasons of life. I've been a young married couple. Young married couples know nothing about marriage, but you know who knows something about marriage? Folks that have been married for 20 plus years and still married and still in love and still dating and, and, and courting their spouse. Man, what a gift. That's who you need to be with. Who do I need to be with? Not a bunch of New parents that got babies. No, you need to be with a, a parent that's like raising teenagers, right? And those that have sent teenagers out of their homes that like, you need to have those of us with teenagers, we need to hang out with those people. And on and on and on and on it goes that it's not just same seasons of life that connects us, but what ultimately connects us is, to, is our common faith in Christ, the blood of Christ. And you and I, we need to understand that we need we need differing lifestyles. We need differing views. We need differing interests. We need different seasons of life that together you can teach me through those. That the people, I think when we read this and what we see in the New Testament church, certainly we could say this about the church in the book of Acts and even following, that the, the, the people that those individuals, those believers hung out with, did life with. When we look at a, a text of scripture like Acts 2, 42 through 47, you see the church coming together and meeting in people's homes. We can say this, that the, the people that they hung out with, that the only explanation for them being together was the gospel of Jesus Christ. It wasn't just some 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 other thing, but it was just the gospel of Christ. And I think that should be true for us as well. That the people that we hang out with, it should be inexplicable 
why we would hang out with these people except for the gospel of Christ. Which leads us to the next part, the hospitality part, the part that I really wanted to preach for a while, but I preached the other. Look at what Paul says here. Therefore, because of all this, that's the therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So again, the idea is there are those on the outside There are those who are just hearing about Jesus, just coming into your midst, just attending your gathering. And how should you treat them? Well, here's what he says, welcome them. It's the idea of welcoming others, extending hospitality, making others feel welcome, included, invited. Why and how? As Christ, that's the, what's the fuel for this? Well, as Christ has welcomed you. Think about your own life. How has Christ welcomed you into the family of God? And in the same way, with the same ferocity, with the same intensity, with the same attitude, you and I should welcome others into into this family, into our family, into even, I would say, even into your family. That um, there's a Beatles song, and, and again, this is not, my genre of music. There's the only reason why I know this is because there was a Saturday Night Live skit. All things honest, there's a Saturday Night Live skit where uh, Chris Farley is um, interviewing Paul McCartney, and he quotes this song in it. But it's a there's a song in the a Beatles song. It's in the song uh, in the end where Paul McCartney wrote. He said, "The love that you take is equal to the love that you make." And John Lennon later on said in an interview, that's a very cosmic and philosophical line. I don't even know what that means. But I think that what Paul McCartney spoke and what Lennon was recognizing was was the truth in that statement. That the love that you, you give out is equal to the love that you understand, that you receive the welcome that you give out is welcome to the is equal to the welcome that you receive is what Paul's saying here that if you believe that the gospel was get your act together and God will accept you if you believe that God was hands off waiting for you to come to him if you believe that you had to win God's love and acceptance through your religious performance or your moral excellence then this is how you will approach others. You will wait for others to prove themselves before you'll initiate friendship. You will secretly say, can I trust this person? And if I find them to be trustworthy, then I will accept them. Then I will include them. Then I will befriend them. You will be standoffish. You will isolate yourself. You'll withdraw from others. You'll be suspicious of others. But if you believe the truths of the gospel, that God loved you when you were at your worst, that you were a rebel outside of the family of God and God has, by his grace, he has set his love upon you, that he has been, as one of the Puritan writers called him, he's the hound of heaven that has sought you and bought you with his blood. He has pursued you, invited you, included you, and welcomed you. And that is how you will live your life. In the Old Testament, there's a story. 
It's um, in 2 Samuel, um, the ninth chapter. It's one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. It's the story of David and Mephibosheth. Now, Mephibosheth got an odd name, but here's who Mephibosheth was, was David's predecessor to the throne. So David is the king now. So what's happening in 2 Samuel, David's now the king of Israel. And so the, the, uh, his predecessor is uh, King Saul. And so King Saul had a son, Jonathan. Now, David and, and Saul, I mean, Saul's threatened by David. Saul tries to kill David. Even though God has appointed and anointed David to be king, Saul's like, hey, I don't care about that. All I care about is my throne. But here's the twist in the story. David's best friend is Saul's son, Jonathan. Fast forward a little bit in the story. Saul's dead. Jonathan's dead. David is king. Now, what was commonplace in this time would be to find all of the family members of the king and to kill them. So none of them could come back and try to, try to take over the throne and say, hey, it actually belongs to my family, not your family. And we find in 2 Samuel 9, we find that David says this. He says, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul who is still left alive to whom I can show kindness to? And one of the people attending says, well, there is one. His name is Mephibosheth. It's Saul's grandson. And the story is like in the overthrow of the kingdom and all of that, that Mephibosheth is a baby. And one of the maids grabs him up and goes to run and to leave. And she trips and she falls and she falls on Mephibosheth and she breaks his legs and he's now crippled. And this is what he says, well, there's Mephibosheth, but he's crippled in both of his feet. And he's living outside of the kingdom in a town called Lodibar, like basically a swamp. Bald knob. I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. He's living outside, way out. And this is what David says, go and get Mephibosheth and bring him to me. So we don't know what his age is at this time, but they go and they get this little boy Mephibosheth and they bring him into the king's palace to go and to stand before the king. I mean, could you imagine his emotion? Like, oh my God, what's the king want with me? And we gotta go all the way to Lodibar and to get him. And they bring him in. And this is what David says. Everything that was your grandfather's is yours. His land, his servants, his people are his, are all yours. And then David said, and here's the deal. From this day forward, whenever you eat a meal, you will eat a meal at the king's table. David invites and he includes Mephibosheth to come and to eat a meal at his table, at the king's table from then on out someone who doesn't belong, someone who's crippled in both feet, someone who belongs to the enemy's camp, someone who was on the outside, is now belongs to the king's table. I think that idea of king's table speaks to two tables that we can think of. The first table is this table right here. Christ's table, the communion table. That's what this represents, Christ's table, his communion table, the king of kings table. And here in a few minutes, you and I get to come and eat a symbolic meal and what is this? What is this? This is you're being invited and included to come. Those of you whose sin has crippled you in both feet, those of you who belong to the enemy, and that's us, we all by nature were objects of God's wrath, enemies of God. Man, I didn't know I was that bad. You were that bad. You really were that bad. And what he says is you, you and I living in Lodi Bar have now been invited in by Christ's work to come and to eat a meal at the king's table. This speaks to this. Like in a minute, 
those of us are going to come up and we're going to eat. And again, diverse backgrounds, diverse differences, diverse opinions. But the thing we have in common is we were all on the outside and we've all been invited in. Very diverse group of people coming and eating at the king's table. But the second table I believe that the king's table represents is your own table. The table in your home. Or maybe your center of your, the center of our home is our kitchen table. That's where we have family devotion. That's where we eat meals together. That's where we and our family, we're bad Baptists. We play cards. That's where we play cards. That's where my kids do homework. That's where Luann and I work on the bills. Like the, the hub of our home is that kitchen table. And it's also a place where we invite folks to come that are different than us, that possibly don't belong there. We invite folks to come and to sit and to share a meal together at that table. What about your table? Or wherever that represents in your home. I think that's what Paul is speaking at. When Paul says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. It's a very God-glorifying thing when we welcome outsiders, strangers. Now, I'm not saying just go and pick up people on the side. I'm talking about folks in here, into our home, so that we can be the church together share a meal together, to have discussion together. And may we be that kind of church. May we be that kind of church. Let's pray, Jesus. First and foremost, Christ, as we come and as we scoot ourselves up underneath your table, and as we symbolically, as we eat this memorial meal, remembering you, Jesus, it has that individual flair to it because there's already pieces of bread cut up, individual cups that we'll drink. But it's a family meal. It's a banquet meal that it points forward to a, a wedding feast that all of your church will enjoy together with you, Christ, our groom. And so Jesus, this isn't just an individualistic thing we do here. It's a communal thing that we remember this together. We remember you together. We drink from this cup. We eat from this bread as your family. And so I pray for that, Lord, that we would feel that. We would believe that. We pray that it would be a picture, a picture of your kingdom, a picture of this church, and also a picture of our own families, Jesus. Jesus, pray that we would just be faithful to your word, be faithful to the calling that as we think about how you, Christ, have been welcomed into, how you have welcomed us into your family, that we would be quick to welcome others. Your name and for your fame, we pray that. Amen.